right, let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to wake up each and every morning and see your faithfulness to us. You are faithful because you keep your promises. You are a God of your word. And we marvel at that fact. And we marvel the fact that you're not just a God of your word, but you are a God of mercy and of love. And you have poured out your love richly upon us. And Lord, how can we how can we repay you? We can't. We are completely at your mercy and in awe of your love. And so we want to glorify you because of that. And Lord, and thrill our hearts this morning as we even talk about these things. This is not just academia. This will draw us, we pray, closer to you, to know you, to know who you are. Our favorite subject, our favorite being is you, and we want to know you better. Help us to understand your personhood, that you are relational, that you are three and yet one. And Lord, may we even have that much more of a mindset that draws us into worship because of those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as a reminder, as I have up here on the screen, steadfastinthefaith.org, our version of grace to you. Right? This is our resource center that we are beginning to pour more resources into. Again, it, the website link is steadfastinthefaith.org. Please feel free to avail yourself of the resources that are already there. It probably will feel a little incomplete. That's okay. You're kind of our test subjects. So we appreciate that you are allowing us to... Make use of you that way. But uh, in, in all um, seriousness, this is just going to be, I think, a blessing in the Lord's um, providence if he chooses to use this in a big way. These kinds of things, um, especially when you do them right and you, you pour in a lot of work and content into it, it can really minister to a lot of people. We've seen that with how Grace to You has done. We have no expectation that we'll reach that kind of magnitude like Grace to You has, but uh, at the same time, this can be a great resource center, and we, we hope and pray that you can make use of it. So I just wanted to put that in front of you so that you can remember um, to go there and, and use those resources, and we'll continue to build into those things over the next several months and so forth, um, and to keep you updated on that. Okay, we are here in Theology Proper 2. The Divine Nature. That's where we are here. And we're going to be talking about starting with God's personhood. He is a personal God. God is not someone or something that is distant. He's not just facts. He's not just some kind of uh, ethereal concept. He is a person. And that should give you encouragement and hope especially as you deal with challenges in life, knowing that your God is not just a rule, like a system or, or of rules or something. He is a person. He understands. He knows. He has intellect. And that's where it kind of we, we start here with the, God's intellect. God knows and understands even himself. He knows and understands his creation. 
He has knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And we see this everywhere through the Bible. So we're just kind of picking a, a verse here to, to spotlight. Romans 11, verse 33. The depths, oh, the depths and the, uh, and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He has wisdom and knowledge. They're unsearchable. They're unfathomable. He has wisdom and understanding. He has wisdom in creation, like Psalm 104 speaks of. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Or as the ESV says, your creatures. But probably the best translation is possessions there. Okay, so he has wisdom in creation. He understands all of these things. Why? Because he made all of them. And, one of our favorite subjects, he has wisdom in salvation. Wisdom in salvation. And, obviously, a great reference to this, one you may be well familiar with, is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. But to those who are called, both to Jews and to Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yeah? For what? For salvation. To bring salvation to His people. Why? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God is able to accomplish these things, and though the world may see it as foolish, (laughs) that perceived foolishness is better than anything they could ever dream of. Now, This is an interesting one and a fun one. And literally, as I was looking at my notes this morning, I decided to add in things last minute. So hopefully it doesn't seem super out of order. But the will of God, the will of God, very much a hot topic, something that uh, is talked about a lot in theology, but also just kind of at a lay level personally in our own lives. We like to talk about the will of God because one of the biggest questions in life is what is God's will for me and my life. What does God want for me? <laughs> and then it gets into this whole theology of God's will and uh, do we have any part to play in that? And um, is God's will so determinative that it really just doesn't matter? We just got to just let God do whatever he wants and we can't do anything about it and kind of give up, hopeless. Um, and we're not going to explore all of that this morning. We don't have the ability to do that right now, but we will cover this concept more down the road, I believe. Uh, But God acts with a sense of plan and purpose. And that's kind of the concept we're going after this morning. He has volition. He has volition, meaning that he, he voluntarily, of his own nature, decides and desires to do things. And he always does what he wants and always does what he plans. Now, I'm going to explain that a little bit here in a moment. But one thing that's really important for you to understand, it's just a cornerstone to all of this, is that he does not react. He's not reactive. That is hard for us to understand because that's kind of very, the very nature of being human is to react, right? We we, we have to react. We react to, to situations literally every moment of every day. Literally the stimuli of just opening your eyes is reacting to light and what you're seeing and hearing around you. That's reaction. God does not react to anything at all. He simply acts. That's all He does. He just acts. He does not react. 
And the ultimate purpose for all that He does is for His glory. It is for His namesake. And you see that championed well in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. This is for the praise of His glory. Isaiah is filled with this in the latter half of Isaiah where we see His glory He will not give to another. He does this for the praise of His glory. Um, Even He creates Israel and makes Israel for His glory. Okay, so I, I, I could cover that a little bit more, but I'm going to go ahead and keep moving forward because there's a ton of stuff to get through. So let me go ahead and move on and just explain this a little bit here with uh, kind of a little bit of a diagram of sorts to explain this. But let me kind of first spell this out for you. There are t- In Greek, in the Greek New Testament, there are two words for, for will. Well, there are two primary words for will. There are a few other ones, but there are two primary ones. One of them is this word, you know what, I don't like red today. I'm just going to do something different than red, I think. Can I do, t- yes, I can. Let's see. I think I can. Mm-hmm. Oh, doesn't like to do that. Okay, hold on. There we go. I can change this. Uh, let's change it to black for now. All right, at least it coordinates better. All right, Thello. Thello. You're like, I don't know what that means. That's okay. We'll define it here. Right? Thello. It means it's wants, desires. Um, we could say wishes, maybe. Okay? But it's actually the verb form in Greek. Okay? It means I want, I desire, I wish. That's what the O ending is, is the I part of it. Okay, not that you really need to know that, but just interesting. All right, and then this other word, hard to pronounce, sorry, that's a U there. Bulamai. Bulamai. Bulamai is decree, but it's used of people too. So, determination. Okay, determined to do something. When I'm working through the Greek text, I really try to splice these out and make it really clear. Because that's really what the root idea is. So when I see bulamai, I'm translating it in my head as determined. I determined to do this. Okay? Uh, Thelo, when I see that, I want to do this. I desire to do this. But the, this one's a little bit more up in the air as to whether it's actually going to happen or not. This is what I want to do. It hasn't happened yet, but this is what... But determination's a little bit more like, I'm so resolved to do this. Is just, you know, I'm, I'm determined it's going to happen. Paul says this to the Corinthians. I determined to come to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I determined to do that. See, the issue is, is that when humans determine to do something, there is the scenario where it might still not what? Happen. It might not come to pass, right? But when God determines to do something, what happens? It always happens. But here's where the question is. What happens when God wants to do something with his cello? Ah, interesting. Right? Because what we have here, like in Thelo, is 1 Timothy 2.4. God wants all people to be saved. But is that what happens? No. You're like, oh, hold on. This is kind of messing with my theology. Hold on a second. Hold on. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Not wishing 
And actually, the word is not wishing. It's the word, he is not determined. It's the bulamai in this one. He is not determined that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You're like, whoa, is that saying then that God is determined that everyone's going to be saved? No. Because there is embedded in that verse an ellipsis. What's an ellipsis? It means like the dot, 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 right? It means that there's something that was mentioned previously that is intended by way of ellipsis. In fact, to explain this, we're going to have to go over there. Let's turn over to Second Peter chapter 3. Okay. Who knows? We probably won't get through all of this today. That's okay. Second Peter chapter 3. I actually, in seminary, I wrote a paper on this. So this was a fun one to do. Uh, trying to explain this concept. And this helped me understand this better. Talks about in chapter 3 of the, the flood, how the world forgets that. They just think everything's going to continue just the way that it always has and that God can't interrupt what's going on when in reality He can. So then in verse 8 it says, But let not this one thing escape your notice, beloved, that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Whole thing there. Can't get into. But... That's often used as a proof text to say God is outside of time. Um, I'm not arguing that at all. I believe God is outside of time. But that's not what that verse is saying. (laughs) Uh, As funny as that is, it makes it sound like it is, but it's not. Because the whole point of patience is to be in time. Okay, so anyways. Verse 9. He is not, the Lord is not, it actually probably should be translated, the Lord of the promise. The Lord who makes a promise. It's not slow, as some regard slow things. It's not slow. But he's what? What does it say? He's patient. Toward who? Toward you. Who's the you? It's the audience, right? Who's the audience? Peter's Christian readers, right? He's patient toward you. Not wishing, but that's... Does your translation say wishing? Okay. It's determining. Not determining that any, and the implication is of what? Any of who? Any of you. That's the context. Not determining that any of you should perish, but that what? All of you should come to repentance. The point is, is that this is not a theology of everyone in the entire world. The context is talking about this specific audience of Christian people. That God is determined that all of His people will come to Him in repentance. That's what that's talking about. But when you get into 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, there is no context for that. That He's talking specifically about Christian people or just His audience. Because He goes macro in His descriptions about the world in that context. You can turn over to 1 Timothy 2 for a second. 1 Timothy chapter 2, just to see this. It's talking about prayers and supplications being made. On behalf of uh, chapter 2, verse 1, says those prayers, supplications, thanksgiving should be made on behalf of how, who? All people. That's the context. All people. That's all people. 
there's no distinction there. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable before God our Savior, who what? Desires. The word is not determined in this case. The word is thelo, wants, wishes, desires all men to be saved and to come to the recognition of the truth. Here's the issue that I think sometimes we struggle with, but we oversimplify God. Let's pull this out here. Kind of get some room and diagram this just a little bit. God is not simple, like simplistic, as though, and neither are we, (laughs) as though he just has one will and that's all he is and that's just all he does. It's just one unilateral will and it's very simple to understand. That's not how it works because that's not how you work and you're created in the image of God. You have layers of wills happening all at the same time, layers of desires, and you sacrifice will some wills, on behalf of greater wills. You sacrifice some desires on behalf of greater desires. So, you can argue it almost like a a pyramid of God has certain thelos, like thelo number one, and thelo number two, and so forth, but it ultimately is subjected to His bulamai, okay? Or, right, His determination, I mean, you do that all the time. I mean, like, you just think about it, like, with a child. Like, yeah, I want my child to have that ice cream cone, but I have a greater purpose where I'm not going to give that to him because I think that's not the best thing for him. God works that way, too. And we can see that, too. Like, does God always get everything he wants? It depends upon which will you're talking about. If you're talking about this one, then yes, that's true. He always does, because his, his final decretive will, he always gets, he, and he always determines that. But does God want all people to do what is right? Would we all agree with that? I think we can all agree with that. God wants everyone to do what is right. Is that what happens? No. So already you have a great example. It's very clear. God does not always get everything he fellows. But why is that? Is that because he's reactive to man? It's just like, well, I guess I can't help it. No. Why? Because he's, it's submitted to this. It's not submitted to man. It's submitted to the fact that his decree has orchestrated it for a greater purpose. And at the pinnacle of this, of his determination and his will, is his glory. Which is hard to fathom and hard to understand exactly how His glory works and what the whole purpose is with His glory. But everything ultimately serves that purpose. That's His decretive will will ultimately show forth His glory. Okay? I wanted to bring that up and maybe bring some clarification there, but hopefully that's a little bit helpful. God does have will, but it's complicated, isn't it? Just as we're complicated. And sometimes we're su- we surprise ourselves. We're like, wow, I didn't even know I wanted that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how complicated will can be. Okay? All right. Emotions. God also has emotions. Now, this one's a little bit interesting. Um, because there's a whole doctrine called divine... Does anybody know what this is called? Divine impassibility. 
Have you ever heard that before? Divine impassibility. It's a nerdy, nerdy subject, okay? But it basically is like God has no emotions. God has no emotions. And when you read the Bible, you don't really come away with that right off the bat. You're like, no, I think God has emotions. He gets angry. He gets grieved. I'm not as prone to lean really hard on divine impassibility. I understand what people are saying with that. Get that. Totally makes sense. Um, but many theologians really struggle with this, and they get very argumentative about it. Um, but it's really important to understand, though God, I would argue, has emotions, he is not, like we talked about, reactive. That's what we usually think about when it comes to emotions. He's reactive. Like, I didn't expect that, and so I didn't have a plan for that, so I've got to react to that. He's not reactive to the situation. He's always acting. And the whole point of his acting is that he's acting in emotion based on his character, not based upon the situation itself. Does that make sense? Right? That's why God can still have emotions. It's clear. Like, literally, you have to do a lot of violence to the text of Scripture to advocate for the fact that God has no emotions. It literally says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How is that possible? Like, he's grieved. He was grieved when he made man. Uh, in Genesis 6, and man began to proliferate sin on the world. God has emotions, but they're not reactive and they're not out of control. They're never out of control. Ever, ever, ever. That's how we often think about emotions because that's how we, we live within the realm of emotions that are often out of control. He's not reactive and they're never out of control. They're always in coordination with his character and his character is always unchanging. So when we, when we get into that whole concept of God being unchanging, it, we have to talk about it within what are you talking about? What are you talking about God, where God is unchanging? His character is unchanging and everything subordinates to that. So even though you have movement in the emotions, right, if you could call it that, right? I guess you could say that. Uh, from our perspective, movement and the emotions, it's always subordinate to his character. So, and we'll talk about this here in a moment, but he is 100% loving. He is always 100% wrathful because it just depends upon what subject matter you're talking about, whether you're talking about sin or whether you're talking about um, his desire to put love upon his people. Okay, so that's emotions. Okay, there's a lot there, but we'll keep going on. God also has self-consciousness. Self-consciousness. Um, something that I would argue the animal kingdom doesn't have as much, <laughs> sort of. They kind of do, not really. They don't really evaluate themselves like that, right? Uh, but God has made us and made us have a self-consciousness. And, of course, we would expect God to have the same kind of ability, and he does, and it's far beyond that. God reveals himself as a unique person and not as an impersonal Four. So we see this in Exodus chapter 3. He says to Moses, I am who I am. That's a self-evaluation. I am who I am, a self-consciousness. Uh, he's jealous for his name. Uh, so he understands that he has a reputation. He has a name that he upholds, like Isaiah chapter 42 talks about. And one thing that wasn't really originally in the notes here, but just is interesting, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but he communicates with himself. <laughs> God talks to himself. Not that he's schizophrenic, okay? <laughs> but this is the whole, this is actually a really important point. This is why Trinity is so important. Because it establishes the need 
for communication. Or I should, not the need. It establishes the precedent for communication. Trinity establishes the precedent for communication. And then he's relational. He has relatedness. God even enters into relationships with people outside of himself, such as you and me, such as the people of Israel. He makes covenants. He listens to prayers and acts upon them. He blesses obedient people. He judges and curses disobedient and rebellious people. He has relationships. He interacts with them and he acts upon those relationships. Okay? Now, God is also an infinite spirit. God is an infinite spirit. He is non-corporeal, meaning that he does not have a body, right? He is a spiritual being. And this is actually becomes really important when we talk about Trinity here in a moment. Um, but John chapter 4, verse 24, you would know this one really well, but as he speaks to the woman at the well, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Yes, Jesus confined himself to a body, but the whole of God if you could say that. The whole of God is not confined to Jesus' body, just the person of Jesus himself, not the Spirit, not the Father. Uh, He has non-material existence, uh, and uh, that's part of this as well. Um, That's interesting because Jesus actually defines this. Even though he talks to his disciples in Luke 24, verse 39, he mentions how um, hey, see my hands, see my feet, touch them, know that I'm, re- I'm really here in person. Right? He's defining that from a physical point of view. That's important, that's good, because Jesus confined himself to a body. But then he defines this and says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So that's interesting, because he's basically saying that this is what you define a spirit as. A spirit is not body. And so we should not expect like God the Father to have flesh and bones. It does not have that. We can also use this term unextended. God does not take up space. Yet, he's omnipresent. And my theology professor, it was such a great illustration, but you know, we often want to think about it spatially, like God is kind of everywhere spatially. And yes, that's probably the, the easiest way to understand it, that he's like, he's right here, and he's right here, and he's right here, and in between the molecules, right? He's everywhere, like all over the place. But that's not really what's intended, right? And so one of the better ways to describe it, perhaps, is that God's arm of reach goes everywhere in any moment of time. God's arm of reach goes everywhere in any moment of time. Meaning that there's no moment where he would ever be delayed like I had to get there. There's no that, none of that. He's omnipresent. He doesn't he does not take up space though in 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 the sense that he's just um ubiquitous in the sense of quantity. That's not quite what it's talking about. He's invisible. We know passages like this in the New Testament. He can't be perceived by human eyes. First uh, Timothy chapter six verse sixteen. He alone has immortality. There he's invincible, but then also he dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no one has seen or can see. Uh, more on that in a moment. Uh, but he is the invisible God. Okay, he is invisible. Cannot be seen from a material point of view. And there's the passage there for First Timothy chapter six. In his essence, he is invisible. 
And then even from the perspective of the basis of the prohibition of idolatry in Deuteronomy chapter 4, therefore watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form. You didn't see a form, like a physical form, like here's a cutout of God and this is kind of what he looks like. That's not what you saw on the day that, that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. The only thing you saw was the radiance of fire, but that's not his form. Okay, he is invisible. But what's really cool, and this is a whole theology here, which is a really fun concept and I wish I could get more into, but Jesus makes God visible. Jesus makes God visible. Not just physically, like, okay, Jesus' body physically is the embodiment of who God is. That's not quite the idea. Jesus' body is a reflection of our bodies as humans. That's not what we're talking about. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. Colossians 1.15, he is the invisible God. Um, but Jesus is that image. He is the image of the invisible God. So he... He brings that into focus. And that's really bringing a more spiritual aspect there where he helps to bring the nature of God into a bodily form of sorts, right? That's the idea. Um, What's also interesting, too, is that even even though ultimately Jesus is the one that makes God visible, we have a, a small part and we can make God visible as well. And that's something that we see in First John chapter 4, John chapter 13. By this, people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for me, that, that embodiment, that bringing uh, and demonstrating that this is how people will know you are sons of God and that it's really communicating who God is to people. And this is so cool. Ah, man, this is such a good one. Um, you know that story of when Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel went up on Mount Sinai? And this is kind of before all of the craziness started to happen. But they went up there. It's just a small little passage there in Exodus chapter 24. And it says that they sat down and they ate and they drank. And then it says, oh, and by the way, they saw God. They're like, oh, what? Like, how is that possible? Okay. And it's really interesting because the terminology there is like, there was a pavement of sapphire. Okay. And there was, there's a, it talks about a couple other things where you can even see, it's almost like it was as clear as the sky itself. Okay. Beautiful terminology. How is that possible? Because then you have later on, John say what? No one has seen God. And you're like, contradiction. What in the world? How is that possible? See, but that's the whole point of John, is that no one has seen God any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He is what? He has explained Him. He has demonstrated Him. Because what you have in Exodus is terminology. This is, ah, oh man, we have, we could spend literally a few Sundays on this, just this whole concept. But is the connection of the terminology from Exodus 24 to Daniel chapter 7 to John, sorry, not John, to Revelation chapter 4 to Ezekiel chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 6, and I think there's one more and I'm missing it and I can't remember what it is. Anyway, okay. Those are these moments where the prophet or the person of God beholds God and it uses that kind of terminology to describe the dwelling place of God, even like that sapphire, that kind of thing, right? 
talking about that? Now, I would argue that this is not quite the same event, but I would argue that this is the same person and it's the same location that's going on here. And what they're getting a glimpse of is, like Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man. This is the Son of Man. And that is how you can hold that in balance. Because you cannot behold God. The whole point is, like even in Exodus 33, no one can see my face and what? Live. Yeah? Uh, the whole point is that you can't see God unless it's through some kind of medium. And Jesus is that medium. That's important. Okay? That's why I would argue that this kind of like whets the appetite for the original readers of Exodus to be like, how is that possible? How did they see God? Because even later in Exodus it says, you can't see me and live. They should have died. There was some way that they were able to live. And the only way, like John talks about, is that you see the sun. You see the sun. Okay? All right? Make sense? Good? All right. He's incorruptible. God does not age or decay. He's indivisible. You can't break him down into parts as though he's kind of like um, pieced together. And he has this term that theologians call aseity or aseity, however you want to pronounce that. Self-existence means that he, no one created him. He just He exists and he always has. He's self-existent, okay? Incorruptible, indivisible, self-existent, okay? We have to keep moving. God is a trinity. God is a trinity. He's a tri-unity. That means he's three and he's one. Tri being three. Unity being united together as one. Tri-unity. So we want to talk about first the unity of God and then we'll kind of talk about the threeness of God as well. The unity, the oneness. And a good definition here is is this. There is but one essence in the Godhead, and this one essence wholly and equally pervades each of the three persons in the Godhead without division or multiplication. Okay? So all three are divinely are all three are of one essence God, and yet there are three, but they are one. Now God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. That's a really important point. Because sometimes we get so much into there is one God that sometimes we think, well, when it talks about the Spirit, that's also the same as the Father. That's not true. It's just they're totally different. So when the Spirit's doing something, that's not necessarily what the Father's doing. Okay, so that's important to make a distinction there. They're just as much three as they are one. They're just as much one as they are three. Now, this is what we like to call... Divine mathematics, okay? Divine mathematics. Uh, so, um, I think I, I think there was even a sermon once preached at Grace Community Church called Divine Mathematics, which is which is really fun. Um, it's the concept of one plus one plus one equals one. <laughs> okay, one plus one plus one equals one. Is there anywhere in the material universe where that's actually true? No, it's not. Okay, so this is where it gets a little bit complicated, and you're like, well, this is. How does this work? And this is what a lot of people balk at with the Trinity when they want to doubt the Trinity or just totally disregard it or say it's wrong. 
they really get hung up on this issue. That this is the problem, okay? And you try to start working out, okay, well, let me see if I can find an illustration that will help because we can kind of set a precedent for how this is going to work. And the illustration, like, fails when you really boil it down. Sometimes you think if it works. You're like, it worked! I got it! I've got the illustration! And it's like, nope, that actually failed when you actually look at it because you might be, uh, when you really look at the, how the, the, the illustration works, it's like showing God is in phases. God is not just working in phases, right? Uh, it, as though it's showing, like, he's broken into parts, like the egg. The egg one's one of the most common ones that we've known historically, right? It's like, okay, there's three parts to an egg, right? And it's like, yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're one egg, right? But the problem is, is the yolk is not an egg, right? It's like, so you can't say, like, that yolk is 100% God, right? Like, or 100% egg, right? Can't do that, All right? So the point, the question is, is, is there an illustration that would explain the Trinity, and at first blush, I would say, you know, it's like, well, no, there's not, right? There can't be. It's impossible. There might be. Let me, let me explain, okay? And you're like, okay, I'm getting my rocks out. I'm ready to throw at this guy because he's, he's a heretic. Here we go, right? All right, hold on a second. Bear with me. I've never shared this in public before, so get ready. Throw this, throw, throw your rocks, and uh, I'm fine. That's okay. It's, it's what, I, what I deserve anyways. All right, when I was, when my wife and I, um, were recently married. Uh, we went and watched our first movie in the movie theater, and it was um, The Boss Baby. Did you, get, you guys ever seen The Boss Baby movie? That's hilarious. Uh, it's a really funny movie. We were laughing. No one else was. And I was like, okay, whatever. That's okay. Um, but it was really funny. And this whole, the whole precedent of the story is there's this little kid. He's like seven years old. His name is Tim. Okay, and Tim gets a new baby brother. And the whole concept of this is that his new baby brother is actually like an adult in a baby form. Okay, and he's got this really deep voice played by Alec Baldwin. It's hilarious. He does a really good job. And uh, and the whole point of the film is that there's a competition now because who's getting all the attention? Who's getting all the love? Who's getting all of the focus? It's the little baby now. And Tim's losing that focus from his parents. And he's struggling with that, right? And... Um, and there's this one really funny conversation that Tim and the baby have with each other. And, and by the way, this little baby is like an expert businessman, right? So it makes perfect sense. Like it, this like adult, he's like wears a suit and a tie, that kind of thing, right? So uh, it's really great. And in this one conversation, um, he, he says to Tim, he's like, you, you obviously didn't go to business school, right? Because this is not how it actually works, right? Because the numbers just don't add up. And so he uses one of these um, one of these little, I don't remember what they call them, but they're those toys where you're like moving the beads from one side to another. You know what I'm What is it called? Abacus. An abacus. How do you spell that? I don't even know. Okay. All right. All right. So he's using one of those, an abacus. Okay. I wonder what the plural of abacus is. All right. Anyways. Okay. <laughs> Abaca? I don't know. All right. Anyways, whatever. Um... But he's showing, like, quantifiably, you can't do that, right? It's like, okay, there's two sides. There's, like, a two-sided abacus, right? And, like, you can go one way or the other. And he's like, babies take all the love. Babies take all the attention. They need all of the focus. And he pushes all the beads to one side. And you can't have beads on the other side, right? So he's like, wait a minute. How is that possible? Like, so then I can't get any love. I can't get any attention. I can't get any focus. I, my parents apparently must, if they got to dedicate all of their love to this baby, then they have no room for love for me. Okay. And when you think about it, mathematically, because that's a quantifiable thing, that's a business way of doing things, that's a, you're, you're doing a mathematical concept there. In a quantifiable way, that is an undeniable axiom in nature, right? If you have all the beads, 
then no one else can have any other bead. Right? That's kind of just, that's just the way it has to be. And yet, here's what's cool, is that at the end of the film, the point of the film is that that was not true. Is that, the, in fact, they even say it at the end of the film, and that's kind of like where the light bulb kind of went off. I was sitting there, and I was like, wait a minute, oh, this is cool. Um, because they mentioned to Tim, the parents, that we love you with all of our hearts. 100%. We love you with 100% of our heart. And we love who? Your, your brother, your baby brother, with all of our heart, 100%. Okay. And so when I thought about that, it's like, okay, this is kind of interesting because in the film, it kind of can look like this, right? If they had three children, it would look like this, right? 100% of the love goes to all, to each one. 100% of their heart goes to each one. Okay? And that's what it would kind of look like in the diagram. And that, in a very similar way, is exactly how the Trinity works, isn't it? That's exactly how it works. Because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and 100% of God is applied to all three. And yet they are, there's what? One God. Just like in the illustration with the parent's heart, when you think about the parent's heart corporately, there is one heart there. One heart. And yet 100%. Now, does that satisfy maybe your query on how this all works? No, I don't, I'm not under the assumption it does. But I would argue that that does help a little bit, perhaps, in explaining it. And you may wonder, well, why, why do the other illustrations not work? Why do they fall apart? Because Usually, the illustrations that we give for the Trinity are material. They're of physical matter, physical earth, right? So it's not so much... Well, let me just put it this way. The material, when you put something into the material world, that's going to be a problem because God is not material, right? He's not material. He is spiritual. So in order to make an illustration that will actually make somewhat sense, you have to use a spiritual illustration, something that you can relate with. And I think that that somewhat does that. But you might be like, I'm totally unconvinced. That's heresy. That's fine. No problem. Uh, we can always talk about that. But um, in any case, that's, that's how I would explain it, is that there is, um, you have to have some kind of a spiritual Illustration. If you're going to even try to explain the Trinity in this way, okay. All right. Now, going back to the biblical teaching here of the Trinity, three persons. Each of the three persons is God, and the three persons are one God. The oneness of God is His essence. His essence subsists in the three persons. So we have the Father is God. The Father is God. That's just a given in Scripture. I think you just know that. Like when you see Jesus talking about his Father, he calls him God, right? The Son is described as God. This is where there's been a lot written on this and a lot of debate going all the way back throughout church history on the Son being God. But well established in Scripture, very clear. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I wish I could break down and show you all the details of why that actually still um, works grammatically and when the Jehovah's Witnesses come and try to poke holes into that, it's just totally false, but um, there's a whole 
thing called Colwell's rule that actually works really well there. And it, yeah, anyways, okay. We'll get to that another time maybe. Um, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, describes Jesus as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it uses another Greek rule called the Granville Sharp rule to use the grammar to show how those go together. It's not just saying, as the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, as though they're two diff- totally different people or to- totally different persons. Not true. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, calls him God. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. Um, there are some other implicit ones that are really powerful. Like, and I've mentioned this before teaching here, but uh, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gets up on, this, on, the, on a mountain and he starts to preach, the terminology there is like reinforced five, ten times over to demonstrate that this is reflecting Sinai. And who delivered the words from Sinai? Yahweh. And Jesus is basically saying, I have the authority that Yahweh has. I am God. Uh, and you also have the disciples to sleep, asleep in, a, in the boat. And there's a lot of parts of that passage that communicate its connection to one other story when someone fell asleep in the boat, which was Jonah. Yep, right. And who stopped the storm in Jonah's story? Yahweh gods. Who stopped the story in the disciples? Jesus. What is it supposed to equate? Well, who then is this? Who then is this? When you think about back to the Jonah story, it's Yahweh. Right? So there are definitely some powerful impl- implications there without actually having to say it at all. Which might actually go further for some of your Jehovah's Witness friends, if you have any. Um, that, you know, might be more powerful. <laughs> um, but anyways, the Holy Spirit is God. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, Hey, uh, the, God's temple, you are God's temple. And... God's Spirit dwells in you. Those are parallel concepts. So God's Spirit is acquainted with, equated with God. God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you. That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Peter says, you've lied to God. And in the next verse, he says to Ananias, you've lied to, to the Spirit. Wait, you're saying that they're the same, that they're one? Yes, exactly. Um, and then... We also have the Father and the Son are one. So we'll talk about it like this, from this angle. In John chapter 10, we see this. We see this actually throughout all of John's gospel, where Jesus constantly mentions the Father and I are one, or we are unity together, right? But we also see the Father and the Spirit are one, as we just saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The Son and the Spirit are are declared to be as one, Romans chapter 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ. So you have like uh, the Spirit of God dwelling in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, basically ba- making them, equating them and showing that they are one, he does not belong to him. Or, turn your Bibles over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Ah, I love this one. This is a one that is often misunderstood, I think, in my opinion. <clears throat> but it's really helpful to, to, to get it and to understand it in context. John chapter 14, sending some context here in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give to you 
another helper so that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth, which the world is not able to receive because the world does not see him, nor does it know him, but you know him because it says that he abides with you. That's what it literally says in Greek. He abides with you and he will then what? Be in you. Now, this is often used as a um, uh, a proof text to demonstrate that, well, the Holy Spirit was not indwelling Old Testament saints, because you kind of would define the disciples at this point as Old Testament saints, but he was kind of around them. He was remaining with them for, for out, throughout the ages of the Old Testament. And then soon he will be in them. And on the surface, I would take that view too if we just had that verse just kind of sitting by itself. That's not really what's being described here. Because then go, back, go down to verse 25. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while what? Remaining, abiding with That phrasing is identical to what was just said in verse 17. What is Jesus hearkening to? He's demonstrating that He and the Spirit are one. That they are one. That the Spirit has abided with them, and Jesus has abided with them in the exact same way, by using the exact same terminology. So then what, what does it have to do with Old Testament saints? Well, I would argue um, the Spirit was dwelling upon Jesus throughout His entire, what? His entire ministry, right? So when Jesus says, He, the Spirit, has been remaining or abiding with you, it's because they're seeing Christ and they're seeing the Spirit upon Him. That's the whole point. That's what I would argue is going on there, okay? Son and Spirit are one, and we can see that in Romans and in John 14 as well. The Father, Son, Spirit are one. We see that uh, even in John chapter 14. Actually, we were just there. <laughs> so there we go. So we see that even the Father comes into play into that passage, okay? All right. Good. We'll keep moving on. Then there's the threeness aspect. That was the oneness. Now the threeness, and we've got to hurry. There's some Old Testament hints to show that God is three, <laughs> not quite very clear that God is three in the Old Testament. In fact, I would argue that it's not really communicated that he's three, but it is communicated pretty clearly that he is plurality, that there are many within God. They just don't know how many. Okay, It sometimes seems like it's two, because it often showcases two, but it ends up being three when we see Jesus come on the scene. Okay, But... Um, just as a caution, many nominally Orthodox Christians in practice regard the Father as God, but then see the Son as some inferior being to the Father, and then the Spirit as some distant impersonal force, as though it's like Star Wars or something. He's like the Force, right? That's not what. That's not how the Trinity works. It's not who they are. They are equally God. There are roles, but there's not inferiority. There's not inferiority. Okay. Um, now. Some Old Testament hints. We do see some personal pronoun plurals used of God. And you know this, notice this in Genesis chapter 1. You know this well. Um, let us, let us make God in our own image. Now, some people try to explain, well, that's the angels and God creating man. Really? The angels created man? That doesn't, that doesn't work, right? That's, that is, 
that's as, that's further heresy than they could ever dream of uh, otherwise. Uh, and I think there are Jews that want to go that direction. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, talks about this. But one that you may not have um, seen right off the bat is in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. God speaks of himself in the plural and says, Let us go down, this Tower of Babel. Let us go down and see what they are doing. Okay, and confuse their languages. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8. Who, um, who shall I send? Who will go for us? Us. Okay? There's a plurality that speaks in his personhood. But also we see this even like in Genesis chapter 11 verse 7. I just brought it up. Let us go down and see what they're doing. Let's confuse their languages. God is talking to himself. Isn't that interesting? Again, not schizophrenic, right? God is talking to himself, which establishes the precedent for language and communication. In other words, we cannot have language without a God who is already conversant. Before there was any other being, just God, who did God talk with? I'm not saying, like, it's not impossible for God to create beings and then... But it really does make you scratch your head. Where does conversation and relationship happen unless God was multifaceted from the very beginning? Okay, it sets a precedent for language. Now, one thing that's often talked about is that the word Elohim, which is the word for God in Hebrew, it's a plural word. It's plural. So you're like, ah, see, there's plurality in the Godhead. But that's not quite a good argument for the plurality of God because Elohim is really a... Uh, a term of majesty. That's why it's in the plural. And we can see that because even the God of Moab, Kamosh, in Judges chapter 11, verse 24, and 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 33, is talked about with the word Elohim. And he's a singular God. It says, Kamosh, your God, Elohim. Uh, that was often used in those practices back in the Canaanite era. Okay, so Elohim is not quite evidence for plurality in the Godhead, uh, although it sometimes is treated that way. But you also see passages like Genesis chapter 19, Psalm 110, Isaiah chapter 48, Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, And then there are other texts as well, uh, like in Genesis chapter 22 and Exodus 13 and 14, where you see members of the Trinity in this are they in the story together and there's two of them all at the same time so cool Genesis chapter 19 Sodom and Gomorrah Yahweh God rained down fire where Yahweh was on earth it's like what Yahweh's on earth and he's in heaven raining down fire yes uh, Genesis chapter 22 talks about the angel of Yahweh and how the angel of Yahweh would seem to be someone different than Yahweh uh, who Moses Sacrifices is called to sacrifice Isaac to Yahweh, but then the angel of Yahweh says, you were to sacrifice him to me. Well, you just said you were, if you're different than Yahweh, then how can that be? But no, they're, they're one and the same. And so that's important. Okay, now just as a quick note, um, the Old Testament does not establish Threeness Again, the Old Testament does not establish threeness. It, but it does, I would argue, establish a plurality. It does establish a plurality. Okay. We're almost done, but I'm going to go ahead and stop because we're, we're really out of time. And we'll pick this up next time as we finish out the Trinity. And then we'll finish out also with 
the concept of God's holiness. We'll try to make that quick. But hopefully that we've been able to cover some good ground here today of God's personhood. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for the beautiful intricacy of your word and just how every word it it matters and it, it makes a difference into how we understand you and our worship of you. Thank you, Lord God, that you are a God that is, yes, there is mystery to you, and yes, there is complexity to you, and sometimes there are things that are difficult or perhaps impossible to understand, but at the same time, you've given us tools and resources to learn and to grow and to know you better, and we just pray that we would love you and worship you all the more because of that. Bless us today, we pray, as we bless and praise you in the worship service this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.